Welcome to the Movement Made Better podcast, powered by Stick Mobility. We are your hosts, Dennis Dunphy and Neil Valera. Welcome, everyone, to the Movement Made Better podcast. We're very excited to have our guest today, Michelle Dalcourt, uh, founder of IOM, Institute of Motion. So, Michelle, we'll let you go ahead and take it from here and give a little background on yourself, sure. sir. Yeah, no, no worries. I, first and foremost, appreciate your time, both of you today, as we navigate this conversation. But my background you know, academically is, you know, I took my graduate and undergraduate work up in Canada in uh, at the University of Alberta in Canada. That was many moons ago. At the time, it was really about... because. I never made it into the industry of fitness and well-being and wellness because of any athletic prowess. Uh, I wish I could say I, I did, but it, the reality is it didn't happen. My brother, who was older than me, stole all the, all the athletic <laughs> he, he did, legitimately. So what that left for me was, you know, I pursued a passion for wanting to know how the body crafts its many mechanisms and how it works, but more on the academic side. And so, you know, that led me into an investigation, a curious investigation at school. It led me to take the, the classes I took. It, it, it led me to lean into the information that I leaned into in an effort to try to understand, you know, how this beautiful machinery called biology does its thing. After graduation, I was working uh, with athletics and with general clientele in what at the time was an emergent field of personal training and an emergent field of, let's say, high performance training uh, many moons ago. It wasn't what it is today, but you know, it was, it was the start of it. And so that led me to work with a bunch of individuals in the space. And it led me to work with a guy named Richard Boyd from PT on the net, oh, which was uh, the largest at the time resource for personal trainers. And he had just started it. I mean, I remember the day he started, I remember t talking to him about securing what, what was called at that point, the URL, which is the domain. <laughs> right? right. Yeah. And it was like, this is back in 99. Right. And so this is, you know, this is on the early kind of advent of the World Wide Web. I'm sounding like I'm a grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, you young bucks, there was this thing called. No, but, and so that was really the start of it. And so that was, there was an educational process. And we, he and I were traveled the world, getting in front of folks, educating them on, you know, all things personal training, and then driving them to the subscription of PT on the net. And so that, to me, was kind of the start of an educational process, sharing information, delivering information. And of course, that opened a huge amount of doors for me mm -hmm. in, the, in the industry. So took that academic background and then, you know, really leaned into fitness and education and then that just laid the, the groundwork for, you know, kind of where we are now. So PTA Global, we, we formed a number of years ago, which was a certification for personal trainers. And then both IOM and Viper Pro were a natural kind of extension of the learning process and, and just trying to realize that in different ways. And you guys use the four quadrants as the base of your pro, uh, programming. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, I can. Thanks, Dennis. So for us... Really, when we think about IOM, it really is a, an applied health and human performance company, right? So, if okay. someone asked us what IOM is, it's, it's, we're an applied health and human performance company. Which that, what that means is that it's not just human performance. It's not mm -hmm. just trying to make a person bigger, stronger, faster, mm -hmm. or you know, trying to elicit some sort of high performance outcome. It's about the health index as well. Mm -hmm. and so, I'm sure we're going to dive into it. But for us, that's really it. And so, as an applied health and human performance company, we seek to provide solutions and strategies 
as well as a logic and an operating system for health as well as human performance. So to your point about 4Q, 4Q stands for four quadrants, right? So imagine if you took two, what we would say is two continuums and you, mm-hmm. you merge them together, right? So you got a vertical continuum and a horizontal continuum and you overlaid them on top of each other. What you would get is four distinct areas, right? These mm-hmm. plus signs are across. And each of those distinct areas would be a way to look at something. Mm-hmm. Uh, in our case, metabolic uh, influences, mechanical influences, and or recovery influences. So we've got three 4Q models that speak to recovery, metabolic, and mechanical loading. Uh-huh. And what they do is they allow us to organize our thought process so we can visualize and create operating systems and solutions, all that, but it really organizes a thought process that subverts the idea of a dogmatic or an ideological approach on things. Uh-huh. So for instance, like I would say that fitness and fashion are hugely trend-based. Oh, yes. They're hugely. I mean, whatever the trend Mm -hmm. du jour is, that's what we're doing, right? Yeah, right. And 20, 30 years ago, the trends of fitness were not what they are today, right? And to a certain degree, uh, nutrition as well. Like, you know, carbs were awesome 20 years ago and fats were terrible. Now carbs are terrible and fats, as long as they're the right (laughs) ones, are awesome. And so, you know, the pendulum swings. But I would say that fitness and even approaches to fitness are of the same ilk, right? So... Mm -hmm. You know, high intensity exercise, that is the flavor of the day, right? And everybody who's worth their their weight and salt is going to do something like that. We kind of think beyond that in a way. Like we look at what uh, outcomes are going to be enhanced both from a performance perspective and a health perspective. Mm -hmm. And sometimes those things are not equal, right? Take a look at, you know, if we went to Boulder, Colorado right now and we we looked at who lives in Boulder as an athletic population. Well, endurance athletes, right? Because they live at altitude, they can train, and they can get all these adaptations relative to altitude. And you look at that cohort of individuals, and then you look at them and you assess their performance. And you'd say, well, they're all world-class. I mean, all the elite world-class champions you know, have influence in that area of the world. They are world-class fit, and they, they achieve world-class, let's say, performance outcomes. And a lot of them are not healthy, right? Mm. Athletes are not healthy. Uh, and that's not a universal statement, but that's a pretty, that's a pretty safe statement mm. in the sense that they just push the envelope so hard that that doesn't necessarily lead to better health outcomes. So if I'm an endurance athlete training like I'm training, let's say that's affecting my hormones, that's affecting my chemistry, that's affecting my health. You often see degradations of health because of that amount of, let's say, high performance outcomes. And so those two things are not synonymous. And our ethos is fitness does not necessarily equal health. And so what we do as a business is we say, all right, well, what does? How do we train and prepare for it or program for it? And the four cues, Dennis, is really one way in which we do that, right? So we've got three models and I'm happy to kind of go through each of these models in some degree. But what it starts to do is it starts to inform what decisions we make and how those decisions come to life in relation to exercise and health. So, you know, before you, I guess, place someone in a quadrant, what kind of test would you do to, and what markers would you use? Are you doing blood tests? You know, are you doing checking aerobic capacity? Yeah, uh, that's a great, Neil, that's a great question. We, we would do a lot of them. So let, let me, 
let me make sure I answer that question, but let me back up one step. And let's go through, let's say, Neil, the, the, four, the 4Q metabolic. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to paint it, and it should be pretty simple in the, in the listener's eyes or in their mind's eye, because one thing that we've noticed about the 4Q models is that it's super easy to understand, right? I'm going to explain it in two minutes, and most people, not to set an, an expectation, but most people should get it right away. No pressure, right? They should get it they right away. They can rewind it. Yes, <laughs> it's pretty easy to navigate. But the, I think the nuance, the science, and how you undulate these quadrants are going to be, they're at a different level. So I want you to imagine that there is a, a vertical axis and a horizontal axis mm-hmm. on this 4Q metabolic model. And I want you in your mind's eye to picture them coming together and overlapping as if they were a cross, not a plus mm-hmm. sign. The bottom quadrants are larger than the top two quadrants just like a cross, right? So on the y-axis going up and down, the vertical axis, you've got a measure of intensity, let's say relative to heart rate. So you've got on the upper end, you've got high intensity. And all the way down on the other end, you've got what we call sub-max or low intensity, but sub-maximal intensity for sure, but low intensity. So you've got this kind of line that goes up and down, and it mimics the idea of thresholds, right? So, you know, what threshold are you in in terms of heart rate? Your x-axis going left to right, your horizontal axis, is going to be whether your heart rate or your intensity is undulating or whether it's fairly steady state, right? So, we're looking at your physiological state. Is it steady state or is it undulating? And if it's undulating, we're going to call that interval. Mm -hmm. And part of interval means that there's a work period and then there's a rest period that's long enough to get your physiology to recover. And so when you have both of these things that start to come together and overlap, you inform four quadrants. So let's kind of do this in our mind. You got high intensity, you got low intensity. On your left, if you're looking at this, you've got steady state. And on the right of your horizontal continuum, you've got interval. If you're thinking about that, you've got now four quadrants. You, on the lower left, you've got submaximal low intensity, but submaximal intensity steady state. And on the lower right, you've got submaximal intensity interval training. So, Neil, you asked a question like where, what, you know, if you're training a person, depending on what quadrant they're in, the, the answer to that question, which is a really good question, is it depends what they're doing. Like I can exist in all four quadrants depending on what I'm doing metabolically. So if I'm in the lower left-hand quadrant, we would call that the SIS quadrant, S-I-S-S, submaximal intensity steady state, right? S-I-S-S. An example of that would be your cardio training, right? Your long, slow distance, your person going out for their run, they're keeping their heart rate the same, they're running at the same pace, you know, that's the boat of exercise right there. Mm-hmm. If we shift over to the other side of the quadrant, we are looking at SIIT, which we call SIT, submaximal intensity interval training. So an example of that in exercise could be where you're still always below your threshold, right? You're still aerobic, Mm -hmm. but you're kind of, you know, working on different intensity levels. So think of a yoga class or think of maybe just a circuit, but you're never really driving that high of an intensity. So that would be an example of SIT. So let's just stop right there for a second and ask ourselves, is there a benefit to aerobic training? And you might say, well, yeah, because, you know, your oxygen delivery capabilities go up, right? Your concentration of hemoglobin and myoglobin, which carry oxygen in the blood and to the muscle, they go up. 
uh, things like PGC1-alpha and ANPK, which are basically processes within the body that are not only triggered by aerobic means, they look at bringing more mitochondria into the cell. So they are kind of pathways that make more mitochondria within a cell. And a mitochondria, as as we may or may not know, is a little organelle within a cell. And the more abundance we have of it, the longer that cell has an opportunity to last. So what we might say in, in a certain way is, these pathways are longevity pathways. And the way we express it can be through both of the lower quadrants of our 4Q metabolic system, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Yep. So we've got yep. the cis, we've got the sit quadrants. And so we'd say, all right, cool. Now, if we went up and we went to the upper right-hand quadrant, so let's go up again. So up now is high intensity and mm-hmm. the right side is interval. Well, that's high intensity interval training and everybody in the industry knows this one. It's hit training, right? Yep. But the, the trouble with HIIT training is that now the lines are being blurred because if we went into the ex-phys lab and we did true HIIT training, we'd be on a bike or a treadmill or whatever, and we would jack up our heart rate and our intensity to some level approaching critical power, right? So in other words, we're pushing ourselves to the max. And then what we would do is then we would go way down, either do nothing, right, and sit there or go way down in terms of our pacing as the lab master student or, or lab tech would prick our fingers and test for blood lactate, right? Mm-hmm. There's better ways of doing it now, but that's the way they used to do it. And so they would test for lactate. And what, what they would find is when lactate can be effluxed, right, and can be regulated, that was long enough as a recovery and then we could boost it again. So the idea of hip training is always not in the high intensity but it's in the interval recovery, right? So we would argue HIIT training is all about recovery, not about the high intensity. And true HIIT training is taking a back seat to what is being done right now as a popular form of exercise. We'll, we'll get into that in a second. So we would argue that true HIIT training is a lost art right now because the value of HIIT training is super high intensity repeated over and over again with enough recovery in the middle to hit that high intensity again, that critical power again. So can a person hit critical power again and again and again with enough recovery in a certain bout of exercise to actually elicit a better outcome of performance? To do that properly, we need to consider metabolic fatigue and we need to consider neurological fatigue. And usually the ratios are about four to one or you know, or excuse me, one to four to one to six, meaning, you know, 30 seconds of work, you better take four times that amount to recover if you want your substrates back, your energy systems back. So that is in the upper uh, right, hit training. If we look at the last quadrant, that's the upper left. So think about that one in your mind's eye. So you're still on the high end of your X or your Y axis rather, so your high intensity, but now you're on the left side of your X axis, which is steady state. So high intensity, steady state. And you might say, well, wait a second, Michelle, it's impossible to be high intensity and steady state because you can never maintain high intensity, but you can for a certain bout. So we would say that AMRAPs, EMOMs, ASAPs, right? Tabatas, all of those things, yep. we, we would call them not HIIT training. I know the industry calls it HIIT training, but yes. we, would, right. we would call it high intensity, steady state. So we would call it HIS. So to us, it's HIS training. Here's why. The argument is, yeah, Michelle, it's interval because an EMOM is every minute on the minute. So if, if the three of us are doing some exercise and it takes us 30 seconds to do it, great. We got 30 seconds of recovery, mm-hmm. but we got to repeat that. 
right? So the byproduct of doing something over and over again is accumulation of fatigue, which means that the three of us are eventually going to take 35 seconds or 40 seconds to do that same thing, which means, guess what? We got 25 seconds, 20 seconds of recovery, and that's being dwindled down. No problem, but that rest that we take of 30 seconds, 25 seconds, 15 seconds eventually is not long enough to create recovery in my system. So what we find is that my physiology is steady state. It's just always producing acidosis or I cannot get recovery enough so that I can really go back and do it again. So my physiology is more steady state than it is interval. Why? Because I've taken rest periods and I've shortened them. So his training is his training. There's benefit to it and there's consequence to it. And so, Neil, in a longer-winded way, that's the 4Q metabolic. So, let's kind of, with that as a backdrop, it's like, okay, who am I and what do I want to train? Well, I can train in all four quadrants as a human being. I may not do it in the same bout. I might do that over the course of three weeks or two weeks or whatever it is. But by exposing my physiology to each of those quadrants over the course of a program, let's call it a mesocycle or a microcycle, what I do is I expose it to different substrates, different energy pathways, and it makes my system more resilient. Why? Because I'm exposing it to more perturbations, like more stuff. And as a byproduct of that, my body wants to adapt to more things. So what we call that in the literature would be metabolic flexibility. And some of the listeners may have heard of this before. Metabolic flexibility. And it is a measure of health, right? And all it says is, can you or me or someone else change from one fuel source to the next with ease? And to the degree that we can means that my metabolism or let's say my energy systems are flexible to shift. And the more they are able to shift quickly, I'm healthier. Mm -hmm. So we, first of all, we want to consider those, all those four quadrants in our in our programming. And number two is how do we assess for them? It really depends on what quadrant we want to be in. And that goes back to your question. So we can use submaximal predictive aerobic tests if we want to have some test retest or pre and post test in the bottom left-hand quadrant, which was your submaximal intensity steady state. We can use, let's say, activities of daily living markers. Let's say it's just even your watch, like when do you move? And let's chart that over the course of the day. And that could be a test retest for the bottom right quadrant, which is submaximal intensity interval, which is activities of daily living. Your heart rate goes up and down in an interval way, but it's usually submax. For the other two up on top, you could take a, a more, much more of an invasive approach where you might look at a metabolic cart. Uh, you could look at heart rate as a measure and then recovery, how how quickly does it take you to recover in a certain amount of time to be able to plot, test, retest in those upper quadrants? So, yes, we do look at assessments. Yes, they are important for test, retest. And yes, they are specific to each quadrant, but they're not specific to each individual. In other words, as an individual, I am not a quadrant. I can consider all four quadrants and then train within them. Does that so make sense? Yeah, so, yeah. So there's no limitations as far as, hey, this person is so deconditioned that we don't want them to touch. We don't want them to touch high intensity steady state and we don't want them to touch high intensity interval training either. And you know what? You should just stay in this lower, these two lower quadrants the whole time. 
Yeah, awesome. So what we have, can you imagine if you had the, the cross in front of you right now? Oh. And let's say you were visualizing this. So let's say we're a tech company. You guys are in Silicon Valley, right? Yeah. Yep. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Close to it. Yep. So, we're here. Uh, right in the heart. Yeah, right in the heart of it. So imagine if we were a tech company now and we said, okay, let's visualize the data point. So Neil, you have me exercise. Let's say I'm, you're questioning my risk, right? So you're stratifying my risk and you're saying, you know, Michelle might be at a certain level of risk. Let's mitigate that risk by letting him operate more in the lower quadrants for now, right? To your point, let's avoid the upper quadrants for now. Every time I would do a bout of exercise that was pres- prescribed by you both, let's say it was heart rate driven, it was intensity driven, but low intensity, and it was duration driven as well. So now you've got a, a basically a, a map, like this is what I did today, metabolically. So I went in, I did a certain bout and my heart rate was 120. I did it for 45 minutes and it was rhythmical like it was running or or cycling or something you could actually plot that and it would say okay that's definitely sub-maximal intensity steady state our bottom left quadrant you were definitely aerobic and what we're doing is we're trying to challenge the aerobic system to try to get you in better capacity for eventually doing other quadrants so that would be a data point right and it would exist somewhere in the lower uh left quadrant and if i did that you know, a number of times in the week. And then you also plotted my activities of daily living and those are data points. Where do they live? What we would soon see is a scatter plot of different data points in terms of frequency. How much did I do in a month? Because if I did two bouts of exercise, you see two data points. And then you'd also see, you'd also see where those data points actually were. So in a snapshot over the course of a certain period of time, let's say it's a month, you'd be able to tell how many times I did it, right? Because if I did it quite a few, you'd see a bunch of different data mm-hmm. points. And you'd also see where I was. And what that would inform is what we call a signature. And a signature is what it suggests. Like, what should be my signature? So, Neil, if you're stratifying my risk and you want me to train three times a week consistently, well, in a course of a month, that should be 12 data points. And if you're saying, let's get your aerobic zones and, and your respiration, cellular respiration, systemic respiration, let's get all those markers dialed in. So let's avoid intensity right now because you're at high risk if you do, let's say. So you would see a lot of my data points on the bottom part of that, of that cross, right? They'd be all scattered on the bottom. And in a way, you could actually say, okay, you're doing the right things. Or you're actually not doing the right things because it's not consistent with what your signature should be. And as any amoeba, right, any biological system that is going to improve or decondition, it's a flexible kind of fluid system. That's biology. So if you're trying to improve my outcomes, that signature should morph over time. So what you should see in your example is the lower runs is where my data points are. But sooner or later, where are those data points going to go? Got to go start going up. So you're going to see a, not only a visual reference of me right now, but over time, how does that signature change? And you're going to be able to see it in terms of test retest. I'm going to be able to see it as a customer, not knowing anything about substrate utilization and fuel. All I see is where my data points are. And that's the coolest thing about 4Q is that even the consumer says, I kind of get it. Mm -hmm. I kind of get that, you know, there's variable tasks and I kind of see where I'm spending my time and where I'm not spending my time. And I kind of see if that's consistent where I should be or I shouldn't be relative to what, you know, my trainer or my automation tells me, my machine learning in this case tells me. To your point, all of that is baked into kind of the logic that underscores, you know, the 4Q. The 4Q is very simple in its surface, but how we use it then informs programming, 
It informs physiological outcomes. It informs safety. It informs, you know, kind of goal attainment, that sort of thing in a, in a visual way, as well as a physiological way. In the energy systems, when you just talked a little bit earlier about athletes not being healthy in the health and fitness, we're doing this and you ask people, why are you working out? Why are you training? They say, well, I want to live better. I want to live longer. But is the way most people are training actually contradictory to their goals or what they say they're doing? Could be. As I, I mean, you guys are asking great questions. It could be. And it really is about not whether we do it or not, because the industry, as you know, is very trend-based. Mm-hmm. But it's super ideal, ideological and it's super binary. Like, this is bad and this is good. Like, yeah. inflammation, bad. Really? Right. How about if you want to get, you know, like better guns, you're going to get inflamed, right? Because that is the precursor to protein synthesis, right? Like anybody who wants to make gains is going to get inflamed. Cortisol bad. Really? But you need cortisol to get you up and going in the morning, right? And so I think as opposed to making these categorical binary statements, what you're saying is, does something in what we do in our efforts to try to attain our goals, subvert the idea of health. And in in a lot of cases, it may, if the dose response is of a certain nature, Mm -hmm. right? And I'll give you an example. So the upper left-hand quadrant is HIS, right? Mm -hmm. In the metabolic one we just reviewed. So that's high intensity, steady state. That's what what most of the gyms are filled with right now is HIS, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody's high intensity and they're just pushing as hard as they can. Here's the benefit of that. When we start to diminish recovery, we start to build metabolites because we can't get rid of them fast enough because the next bout of whatever is coming up right away. And I didn't recover from the last bout of 30 seconds and my next bout of 30 is up. So I got to do it again. So things accumulate. And when things accumulate, it starts to spike a different chemistry. So if we start to produce like high volumes of lactic acid, it dissociates in water and there's a lot of hydrogen ion which acidifies everything in our body and acidification is good and bad it's good in certain bouts because when we acidify uh, or when there's acidosis right which is acidification igf1 goes way up and then that is a first messenger right and when that first messenger goes way up it binds to like these receptors that we sell receptors and tells a second messenger in the cell to turn on a pathway called mTOR. And you don't have to remember what mTOR is, but it's a powerful, bigger, stronger, faster pathway. So if you look at all the CrossFitters out there posting on Instagram, what do they all look like? And when I ask this question of folks, they all say the same adjective, which is hilarious to me. They always say they look jacked. Yeah. And it's always jacked. And I'm like, yeah. you're right. And then I say, well, do the women kind of look like the men? And they're like, yeah, yes. they all look jacked in kind of similar ways. Big stocky frames, you know, mm-hmm. big tree trunk like abdomens. And then, you know, even if like, two people were to walk across the street and you looked at their somatotypes, their body types, I bet you'd be able to tell like that, that person's a crossfitter. <laughs> by the way, they look. You see the gay pattern so, and it's, gay pattern, it's this, uh, yeah, almost and, like a waddle. You got it. And, and so you look at that and you're like, hey, listen, if I'm a CrossFitter, and again, CrossFitter seems to evoke a very visceral response of either I'm going to protect them or I'm going to berate them. I'm not here to do either. Yeah. I'm here to say this as a coach. If you want to do CrossFit and you want to do it at the best level, the highest level you can, God bless you. Right. And as a coach, I want what you want for as long as you want to do it. If that looks better naked, no judgment. If that's CrossFit, no judgment. If that's a better dad, no judgment. I don't care. If that's important to you, then it's important to me, Mm -hmm. right? And so the goal is not 
whether they're going to do it or not. The goal is how long can they do it and enjoy doing it? Because if they love doing whatever it is they love doing, awesome. I want that for you too. But that, that the key is looking at these individuals. And so you look at his and you look at acidosis and you think in the boat, if you're looking at human performance, you'd say, you know, give me seven of those. That's awesome. Because as soon as I get acidosis, IGF-1 goes up and I get super jacked. That is incredible, right? And so that's why it's popular because mm-hmm. it's justifiable and it elicits amazing results. The consequence is also the benefit. In other words, when we turn on these bigger, stronger, faster pathways of mTOR and everything else, that's also a consequence because when we turn on these pathways, it also turns over proteins faster, which is autophagy, which can be a good thing. But in a a large sense, if we're uh, expressing autophagy, which is cell death quickly, we are accelerating the aging process. So here's one quote from research on mTOR, the very same pathway that makes you bigger, stronger, faster. They've also said that a reduced, let's say, expression of mTOR is linked with an increased lifespan. So if you're thinking about that, we're thinking, all right, health and human performance, do they subvert each other at a certain point in time? They may. Another thing we know is high-intensity exercise expresses a... Uh, a mitokine, which is at the cytokine, which is a protein signaling uh, uh, structure that is an interleukin, interleukin six, and that is immunosuppressing. When we exhibit high intensity exercise, we elicit certain releases of what we would call as these signaling agents. IL-6 is immunosuppressing. So cool if you take enough recovery between these boats, but if I define my fitness and athletic pursuits with a certain expression of intensity. Let's say it's high intensity. And I do that all the time. The question then becomes, at what point is it starting to affect my health and my health outcomes? And I'm not suggesting by doing high intensity, you're blunting your immune system long-term. You're going to have an effect, but if your recovery is undulated properly, no problem. Uh But these things will express, right? And if we've got cytokine activities that are of a certain nature, as long as we know them, then we can actually organize a map to exercise as opposed to simple just bouts of exercise because they're trending right now. And that's getting me to my goal right now, but it's not sustaining a long-term view of my goal. And the example there is how many athletes do we know that were bigger, stronger, faster in their 20s and 30s and broken at 40? Wow. Yeah, the majority. Right. Right. Yes. And that's not good for me. Like as a coach, I'd say, well, why don't you keep doing what you love to do? Well, I can't now because I'm broken. Unfortunate. Right. And we don't want that. So the idea is, can we start to think about health and human performance and consider both of them in terms of what's happening physiologically and then how to program accordingly? Years ago, I started correlating that athletes that were always doing high intensity steady state and and were doing that tend to physically look older than they should have and i think for me that was one of the things that just went wait a second are you really doing what you think that you're doing as opposed to what's taking place right and it's always a dose response too right it's like you know vitamin c is good until you consume enough of it then it becomes bad yes right and so and that's a simple oversimplification of, a, of a, a deep thing, but dose response is dose response. 
And I think that is the secret sauce. It's not whether one thing is good or bad. It's not like hiss is bad, but it's not the, it's not the panacea. It's not the cure-all for everything, right? It has its rightful place so long as the dose response is adequate, just like cis, right? I can do submaximal work too much, and now I'm doing too much aerobic activity, and it also ages my body quicker because you look at ultra-endurance athletes, and they age quick. Yeah. And they look weathered. Now, part of that is, you know, environmental weathering, right? Because I'm just running in, in the wind and the sun forever. You know, there's always too much of a good thing. <laughs> yeah. And so it's how do you undulate enough of it, but not too much of it. And that's, again, that is an art. That is the art of programming. Yeah, because um, there is no, uh, people, trainers want to yeah. just plug. What can I, what, what is definitive and what can I just plug in? And if it doesn't fit in there, what the hell do I do? And that's yeah, and that, that's a that's a tough one because it depends on age, it depends on gender. Like we're doing a lot of gender specific programming. It depends on where you are in your menstrual cycle, if you're menstruating, if you're in your menstrual years as a female. Like, hey, when do you push it? When do you relax? It depends on your somatotypes. It depends on diet. It depends on recovery. It depends on mental well-being and in state, uh, emotional well-being in state. Yeah, so many things, but. In an effort to kind of land the plane on that complexity, Dennis, what we tried to do is kind of, you know, to your point, Neil, before with the signatures, mm-hmm. we tried to say, okay, here's, here's variability. Here's all the things you could ever possibly consider. And then let's look at signatures. Let's look at tendencies. Let's look at where you should be spending your time and a, as a general kind of space. Because then there's freedoms within that. You don't have to land precisely on it. There's freedoms, but it gives you general guidelines. But there's freedom within that structure. We call that structural freedom. And that allows, you know, an individual to modulate within those guidelines, knowing that we're all different. There's bio-individuality. And, and so, yeah, we want guidelines. We all need guidelines. So we provide those. And we say, okay, within those guidelines, you, there's, there's some flexibility to navigate, to modulate accordingly. And so, you know, what we do is we visualize these things. And it's pretty sticky stuff. It's pretty sticky stuff for the fitness professional. Because to your point, Dennis, it gives them guidelines. And then for the end consumer, it gives them visual equity. Like it's, it's pretty easy to see like, oh, I'm missing this quadrant. Should I be up there? No, not yet. It's high intensity. You know, you're not quite there yet. Got it. Or if you're a CrossFit athlete and all you're doing is lower intensity stuff, you're going to very visually see in about one second that I need to be spending more time in, uh, you know, in another area. And so it, it kind of cuts through the lines of ideology and dogma. Because at what point... I mean, our industry is famous for this, is that this is my camp, this is what I believe, yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to throw grenades at you because you're of a different camp. And I'm not convinced that biology sees it that way at all. No. And in fact, the more you study systems biology, the more one realizes that you're right and you're right. <laughs> you're right and you're right, it's just a matter of nuance, it's a matter of dosage, it's a matter of timing, it's a matter of all these other things that are in play, but, you know, you're hanging your hat on this research and you're hanging your hat on this research and yes and yes. And then the, the confusing part is, well, then, then what? Then what do I do? Yeah. And a lot of times what we do is we look at variability. Like we program for variability. And that, to, to us, makes us unbreakable. Because mm-hmm. if we have enough variability, not too much because that's chaos, but we want enough variability, that makes a person unbreakable. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people have, as of late, been asking me about breathing even. Like, you know, Wim Hof and all these people have been breathing, right? And it's like, well, yeah, he breathes in a bunch of different ways. And that variability of breathing makes him have an increased capacity to deal with, like, different perturbations, different stressors, if you will, to the body. It would be like, 
if a bodybuilder who's always just trained in the sagittal plane, never exposed their, their system to the frontal plane and transverse stressors, went and played you know, a high demand three-dimensional sport, they're going to be at a disadvantage because they've never exposed themselves to the variability of stress that is life. So variability and specificity are kind of interesting because, yeah, said principle is, is correct, but we would also make the argument that life is specifically variable. So that yes. would then what? Right? It's specifically variable. Yep. So the said principle needs to include variability in it because that's specific to life. Life is about organizing chaos. Yes, yes that, that's so true. Especially yes. when you have kids. <laughs> kids, yeah. I mean, if we were to film ourselves playing with our kids and we just filmed our knee joints, we'd be like, oh my gosh, we better bulletproof that knee because it's going on all there. So the idea is not to put them in those positions. The, the idea is to matriculate them towards that and build a bubble of capacity, ideally that's bigger than the bubble you're gonna actually operate within, then, then the game slows down. And we've seen that with athletes all the time. Like you take a Viper, you three-dimensional, you three-dimensionalize load, you take them into the game, the game slows down for them because they're always at the right place at the right time because they're farm kids now. And there's not a load, there's not an angle, there's not a, you know, there's not a, a joint position that they're not strong in. Great, that's the goal of any, you know, I think plan if you're going to prepare someone for, you know, any sport that's three-dimensional. That segues into the, the loaded and unloaded four quads that you yeah. guys go by also. Yeah, so the, the next 4Q that we can dabble into would be what we call the 4Q neuromechanical. So just a simple way of saying how do we load the body and how we move the body. Mm -hmm. And so that 4Q looks more like a plus sign. It's not like a cross. It's like every quadrant is the same, you know, geographical space. And so on your up and down axis, you've got loaded on the top and you've got unloaded on the bottom. Real simple way of doing that. Unloaded simply means any external resistance or, or stress that is over and above the natural forces of, of nature. And unloaded, which is on the bottom, would be our bodies in, in the natural environments of life. So I'll give you a couple of for instance. So all of us now are gravity and you know, seat reaction or ground reaction force coming back. And those are the natural forces. So we would say that we're unloaded right now. Now, the argument is, well, no, we're not unloaded, right? We're still body weight, there still be, there should, could be a tremendous amount of load. And the short answer is yes. So we're body weight. But when we say unloaded, what we mean is there's no additional amplification of load beyond the natural forces of the environment. So if we're gravity ground, great, we're gravity ground. If we start swinging our arm, we're gravity and ground and we're, we're the momentum of our arm. Great. If we jump in water, we are kind of gravity because now that downward seeking force of gravity is to a certain degree nullified by the upward seeking force of buoyancy. Cool. And now we've got more of this kind of drag, this water drag, which is different than air drag, which is a lot less. Uh -huh. So those are the natural environments. So in water, that's still unloaded, but we would say it's actually more unloaded, right? So it's on the bottom part of your vertical axis, right? Uh -huh. So that would be in the water and then kind of on land would be a little higher, but they're all in the bottom quadrants, if that makes sense in your mind's eye. Mm -hmm. And any type of external resistance is going to be on the top quadrants. And that could be a barbell, could be a dumbbell, it could be a weight vest, it could be all those different things. So that would be loaded. And then on the x-axis, we've got linear. And by linear, we mean sagittal linear, like the, 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 what, the gym linear that everybody knows, which is sagittal. And then more of a multi-planar. So you're taking two or more planes of motion and you're mashing them together. 
right? So we go from sagittal to more multiplanar. And so what you get when you have loaded and unloaded and linear in the sagittal plane and multiplanar is you get four quadrants now that are of a different type. So let me kind of use the analogy of the classic, I'm doing chest day on Monday. Is it Monday today? Yeah, Monday. Perfect. Chest day. Yes, perfect. Monday today. In the upper left-hand quadrant, we've got loaded linear training, right? It's loaded and it's linear. An example of that would be bench press if we're thinking chest musculature. Okay, cool. Is there benefit to a bench press? There's plenty. Okay, cool. So if we went down to the bottom left-hand quadrant, we're now unloaded, so body weight, and we're still linear because we're still on that side of the x-axis. So that's what co- what's called unloaded linear training. And an example for chest would be push-up. So if you just stop right there, you say, okay, we got a push-up and we got a bench press. Seemingly very similar actions, biomechanically very different because there's different shoulder stability and there's different scapular stability, there's some different trunk stability, there's, there's actually a different mechanoreceptor activity in the shoulder. All those things are different. They still work the chest, but one is going to have more type one joint stability required, i.e. the push-up versus the bench press. The bench press, can I can load up more weight. So I can access more type two fibers in a bench press because it's just, I can go heavier with it. And with Henneman's size principle, when I go heavier, I can access type two A and B and X fibers. Great. So I can do that with the bench press. And the cool thing about that is I can access those fiber types, which are more prone to hypertrophy. So if I want to look bigger for aesthetics, or I just want a bigger cross-sectional area of that muscle because of what it can mean for potential force generation, I got two options now. So now let's go to the bottom right. So now we're still unloaded, so it's body weight. And now it's more multi-planar. So we're going to take more than just one plane of motion, mash them together. So an example might be a scorpion push-up or it might be a Spider-Man or a gecko push-up where I'm crawling around and I'm going through a multitude of different planes of motion in that push-up pattern. Still chest, but now my shoulder is getting more strength, more stability, more motor control in a variety of different joint positions. And as we know, the, the glenohumeral joint, the shoulder joint, recognizes 16,000 different positions in space. I don't know who counts these things, but, you know, it's, it's PhD physical therapists that are, you know, in PhDs. <laughs> but, but if you look at that, like 16,000 different positions in space is what the shoulder joint recognizes. Now, question for both of you. How many positions do we train the shoulder joint in? Oh, like, like what, five? You know, five, like yeah. Lateral raise, front yeah. raise, maybe a horizontal A, B, and A deduction. And that's what we did, right? And then you expected a baseball pitcher to throw a baseball at 98 miles an hour when their shoulder's joint is rotating at 2,500 degrees a second. And we're asking that shoulder joint to be at the right place at the right time. So at sooner or later, strength is awesome for force generation. But sooner or later, motor control is super awesome too. Sure. Right. And so the unloaded multiplanar in this example is that I mean, like we're calling upon, you know, motor control type one in a variety of different joint positions for the shoulder joint as we work the chest, because we're, let's say we're doing an unloaded body weight, multiplanar kind of push up pattern still for the chest. And then the last example would be in the upper right hand quadrant, what we call loaded multiplanar, which would be an external load. So let's say you take a cable and you're standing up. And it's more than just one plane of motion. So let's say you're doing a standing rotational cable push. It's still chest, but now I'm standing. So there's foot and quad and, you know, trunk, shoulder girdle, chest. All that is 
creating a, a force generation. I get it. But it's not just sagittal. There's a lot of transverse plane motion as I rotate and push this thing out as well. So we look at all four quadrants, if that made any sense. And we say all of them were an example of the chest and all of them had benefit. So going back to your earlier question, Dennis, is that they all have benefit. So what does the industry do? They throw grenades like I'm a strength guy and you're a functional guy or girl. So I'm going to throw a grenade over this defense saying, you know, what you're doing is, is not legit. What we would say is yes and yes, like bench press, yes. And, and, you know, standing rotational cable push, yes. It really depends what you want, right? Yeah. Because both have advantage. Now, if all you do is the bench press and you go heavier and heavier, yeah, you could get shoulder impingement syndrome in time. We get that because the dose response and the exposure is too singular and not variable enough. So mm -hmm. I get it. But to say that there's causality to that is a pretty big stretch. Like bench press causes shoulder impingement. No, it depends on a lot of other factors. And so the idea is we always consider variable inputs. Doesn't mean we do. I'm like, we could just do loaded linear training on a certain day or a certain phase of training. We can do unloaded linear or unloaded linear multiplan in a certain phase of training, no problem. But if over time you're seeing a quadrant that has nothing in it, what we would say is you're missing some movement vitamins. Chances are you're missing some movement vitamins. And you might want to think about that. Yeah, I, I love how simple it is. But, you know, within that simplicity of the four quadrants, you get so much variability. And it's, it, it's there. You have a checklist, basically. It's you like, got it. it. It is super simple, but it, well, we can go super complex with it. And I don't mean to, right? Like the simplicity is the, to us, the elegant design. Well, like keep it mm -hmm. simple. Uh, what we want to do is we want to challenge the notion of that simplicity against the complexities of the body, right? Does it hold up? to, you know, I don't know, hard adaptation, right? You take a rower who's loaded linear cardio and you take a runner who's unloaded linear cardio and you look at the adaptation mechanically of the heart, they are different. And what that research would even say is thicker wall for the rower, right? If you, if you take a rower at the end of their heart and you dissect, at the end of their life rather, and you dissect their heart, they will have a, what's called left ventricular hypertrophy, which means they have a thickening of one of the chambers in their heart. Why? Because it's loaded linear cardio, right? They had to, you know, contract muscle against the flywheel or the oar in the water. And that creates what's called a total peripheral resistance that's higher. Your, your heart's going to adapt that way, right? You're going to get a beefier, more muscular heart. Whereas a runner doesn't have that as much. They, they have a TPR that's lower. So they get more preload from the left atrium into the left ventricle. And that expands the, the chamber of the heart. So what you get is a runner gets a larger chamber of, a, of the left ventricle, a rower gets a thicker wall. And then the question is, well, which one's the healthier heart? And the answer is, what research shows is a combination of both within limits. So there's your variability again, yeah. right? I get bulletproof your heart. Yep. So expose it to those two things, right? Bulletproof your knee, bulletproof your breathing, bulletproof your whatever, yeah. right? That's how we go through and just say, okay, variability is something we consider. And, you know, Neil, to your point, it's pretty simple, but it is a checklist and it offers some guidelines. Dennis, that you talked about before, some guidelines to how trainers may navigate, you know, all of the stuff that's coming at them. So if, if I have a client who's a power lifter, yep. a high-end power lifter, yep. do, do I want to introduce a little bit more or a significant amount of uh, multi-planar movements to actually help make them stronger in their lifts? One of the perspectives that answer is, 
You, you might, because every tissue in the body has what's called a rotatory bias. Mm -hmm. So think about trunk stability, right? They want linear stability, mm -hmm. but it's not brought about by linear means alone. So if you think about the binding and weaving of muscular orientation, just geometry and structure of muscle and fascia. You know, how do your lats, you know, how do they align? It's not linear, they're angled. How do your glutes align? They're angled. Your, uh, your, rect well, your rectus abdominis is more linear. Your obliques, your internal external obliques, they're, right, they're Angle, in a transverse yeah. plane orientation. Your VMO, diagonal. A lot of muscles that we have that are super powerful are diagonal. And if they can co-contract and then get out of the way and then co-contract again, if you're a power lifter or an Olympic weightlifter, that binding and weaving is what Stuart McGill called super stiffness, which is, you know, take a look at the grain of wood. The fact that one grain goes this way and the other grain goes this way, that is a weaving structure. And when that weave occurs, you're actually stronger. How do you get that weave to actually really increase? Well, if you've got a muscle that is a, a, a obliquely aligned this way, can you guys see this? Mm, yep. yep. The best way to access is, is through the transverse plane. So if you say, okay, power lifter or Olympic weightlifter, we're going to take a period of time and we're going to introduce some stress in the, in the rotational or in the diagonal plane. What we're going to do by virtue of that is, all right, we stress it tissue remodels along lines of stress. The line of stress is consistent with that oblique line. We're going to fortify that tissue and increase what's called shape stability. And so think about the Olympic weightlifter or the power lifter accessing power because of stability too. It's not just about what they can recruit volitionally in the motor units. It's about what they can stabilize. Mm -hmm. So they wear, they wear powerlifting suits. Great. Yeah. That increases stability, which increases primary mover capability, like, you know, phasic muscles. But we have a, a natural weightlifting suit called skin and called fascia, right? <laughs> Think about it, right? When we get older, it's not the only thing, but when we get older, our skin gets all flaccid and doesn't, you know, it's not taut. Yeah. And by virtue of that, our force capacity goes down. It is not because of that skin alone. It's one contributing factor. Yes, we lose type two muscle, you know, yet, yes, we, you know, decrease coordination patterns. All those things are a function of aging. One of which as well is this idea that our weightlifting suit called skin is getting more flaccid. So to your point, if we're organizing an Olympic weightlifter for three-dimensional load training, what we would call the lower, the loaded multiplanar quadrant, LMT, loaded multiplanar training, which is the upper right quadrant, that organizes a remodeling of fascia and skin in an omnidirectional way. What does that do to the weightlifting suit, the natural weightlifting suit that we wear? It fortifies it. And when it fortifies it, we get a stronger natural skin and natural fascia that create enhanced shape stability. What does that do to force generation? It aids it because we're more stable, right? So yeah, it behooves an individual to consider, you know, all of these other forms as well, because what it does to biology in totality if that makes sense like all these things contribute and so it really does matter what i think is awesome is when we talk about looking at orientation of, of fibers and stresses and tension my wife and i were just at the royal gorge in colorado and just standing on that bridge and just looking at the cables and just thinking about how these cables hold up this structure with all these people on it and cars at one point and then thinking about how these cables in here do the same exact thing while they're changing shapes while they're changing shapes right 
Yeah, and add to that pressure gradients and, you know, hydrostatic pressure and, you know, all this, that becomes biology. So here's the thing is that if ever there are some listeners out there that really want to geek out, if they have no dates on a Friday night and they just want to really hammer out some geek geekness, uh, what, what's troublesome for math back in the 70s was trying to take a look at the, what they called the physical sciences, Newton's three laws, right? Mm-hmm. And how those Newton's three laws apply to biological structures. So when we went to school, we all learned about first, second, and third class levers. Mm. And we were built on a levered system, right? That was the mechanical model that that I learned. Mm -hmm. And what was troublesome for mathematicians is when they took a look at the forces that we could bear. Like if you look at an Olympic weightlifter, right? And the forces that they can bear, and you try to explain it with a levered system, let's say the physical sciences, what they would do is they would run into some problems because they, they would say, well, wait a second. Bone is crushed under this amount of Newtons of force. Tendons should rupture at this amount of Newtons of force. And based on the kind of levered system, the mechanistic system of Newton's three laws and how they applied it to humans, they would say, well, the forces that an Olympic weightlifter, uh, you know, kind of accepts into their body should result in three things. It should exhaust physical energy. It should rip tendon from bone and it should crush bone. And why are those three things not happening? So then what they put is they put these mechanical or these, these mathematical redundancies in. These kind of these little kind of numbers that would just fudge the math just to make the math work. What some mathematicians would say is instead of just fudging the math, why didn't we just take a look at a different modeling? Because clearly this model was flawed from the get-go. And the model that they looked at was from Donald Inkber from Harvard University in some of his look, looks at the cell and how cells take a look at what's called tensegrity, which is off of Buckmaster Fuller's research in like the I don't know, 1940s maybe. And that tensional integrity is a balance of compression resistant members, which are like bones, and tension overlaid on top of that, which is skin, muscle, fascia are all these pulling uh, forces. So if you get this combination of pushing and pulling forces, what you end up with is a tensegrity model. And that bridge is a kind of a quasi idea of that. Can we actually start to normalize distributions of stress over an entire system as opposed to localize them in one area of the body, which really is bodybuilding training. But what does the body want to do with bodybuilding training? Cheat. And the the response to that is, oh, you're cheating. Don't use momentum. And like, got it. So if we put our body being hats on, we'd say, okay, let's negate the natural, what the body wants to do naturally. We'll just diminish that and we'll just isolate force in a given area. And that's pretty cool to build muscle. It does lead to some consequence like tendonitis and everything else that bodybuilders often have. Mm -hmm. So we got to mitigate against that because if you're a bodybuilder, I want you to bodybuild for as long as you want to bodybuild. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. That's your goal. You love to do that. That's that's awesome. The natural idea, however, of the body is to spread forces out, not localize them. It's it's about distributing stress, stress, right? And so the idea of the other side of that ledger, which is not about isolating force, but really about integrating force is the notion of farm kit. Right, which they're cheating all day long, right? They're, every time they do a lift, it's a full body lift, right? And they want to make it a full body lift every time. So bailing hay and everything, that's a full body task every time. So they want to last the entire day and they want to, you know, reduce stress on a certain area of the body so they don't wear it out. And with the result of that is a lot of submaximal load, right? With high degrees of freedom, meaning 
they're trying to take load and triangulate it in all sorts of different ways. And the only way you do that is if you reduce load to a submaximal level off of your percent 1RM. Like you can't take a 1RM and try to three-dimensionalize it. That's a terrible idea. So farm kids often interact with submaximal loads, but high degrees of freedom right? Variable. A lot of times I get to ask the question, you know, hey, listen, can you train strength if you can't go full, full out, right? If you can't go full max strength or full load? Of course you can, mm-hmm. right? Because as you three-dimensionalize a percent of load that is sub-max, you're organizing a remodeling, you know, system that is omnidirectional, but you're also getting strong in all these what we call odd positions which are uncommon positions and once you do that can really transfer to athleticism that can transfer to life that can transfer to all different things even linear lifts the analogy is if you took a gym kid and they wrestled a farm kid and you were a betting person where's your money and the answer is always the same right Mm -hmm. so there is merit to what the farm kids have done even when farm kids some farm kids do linear lifts they're strong Right? Oh, Even though they yeah. never do linear lifts in the farm, you never lift a pattern up and down on the farm. You always lift it and then put it somewhere. So it's always off the middle line. It's always asymmetrical. It's always odd in terms of, you know, commonality of positions. It's all those things. And yet there is a wisdom to that because that's how biology set its rules for how it remodels tissues for tens of thousands of years. It was all on those inputs, right? It's odd positions. It's you know, it's submaximal loads, it's doing it and organizing it in a way that's not repetitious at all. It's basically seems random because when you stack a bale of hay, you did not do one rep that would look like the previous rep. There was never any repetition at all. It's basically, it's infinitely variable. And yet there is some wisdom to that. I know from firsthand experience, uh, when I started rock climbing 15 years ago, you know, before that I'd been doing weighted pull-ups, tons of kettlebell training, you know, all sorts of pulling. But then I started rock climbing and I got away from you know, a lot of the traditional loaded training and I came back and I tested my, you know, my one rep max pull up and you're like, holy shit. (laughs) I mean, everything got stronger. Yeah. Yeah. And we often see that too. You know, there's, there's rest, but there's also this idea of omnidirectional. So think about this, you know, this goes back to a Paul Czechism. You can't fire a cannon from a canoe. Nope. Right. And so the more stable you are, the more force that your body will allow you to generate. Mm-hmm. And so when you rock climbed, the, the degree of variability that you started introducing to your shoulder girdle, to the trunk, to the upper extremity, into the pelvis was now variable, right? It's all the, so now you've got now a huge capacity to stabilize in a variety of different angles. And when you reached that level of stability, your body recognized less threat. And what does it do under less threat? It gives you more juice. Right, you can rev your engine way higher because your body's not pulling back and saying, yeah, go for it, man. And so that, that is a great analogy. It's like you went back to your test and like, I'm stronger. But I yep. didn't do a maximal lift and yet I'm stronger. Yeah, because you created shape stability. You created better afferent, efferent signaling, like sensory motor integration, and you got rid of threat, right? So now you're omnidirectional with less threat and more stability. Hallelujah. Right. Mm-hmm. Your body can now rev your engine big time. And the other thing that we might say is in all four quadrants in the neuromechanical model, you're kind of training the chassis too. like train the chassis of your car. Don't just train your car engine to rev higher and higher and put because if you go to a gym, you're seeing phasic muscles being trained with high degrees of load. Cool. 
that's akin to saying I'm going to train the horsepower of my engine and put larger and larger horsepower in my engine, but I don't take the requisite time to build, let's say, joint stability, to build fascial health, to build all these things that are the chassis of my car. And if I can do that, my car can rev as high as it wants and I'm fine. But the analogy here is everybody goes to the gym and they're putting like a five or 600 or 700 horsepower in their body and their chassis is still like a Ford Fiat. (laughs) So they've got a 700 horsepower engine in a Ford Fiat and it's like, no wonder they're going to break down. No wonder Mm -hmm. they're going to, you know, no wonder they're going to get a soft tissue injury. It makes sense because their capacity to rev their engine is sky high because they're training it. And yet their chassis is exposed. It's weak. And it's going to be, you know, like that analogy would be so clear to us. It's like, dude, get the, get, get the, the Ford F-150 out of your, you know, Ford Fiat. Like it's not going to work. And yet we never see that reality when we go to the gym because it's harder to see. It is. Like, and, yeah. and a lot of that's the ego part too. Yeah, it, it's true. And, and there is a, I mean, I think we'd be lying if we said, you know, one of the major goals that walks into a gym is I want to look better naked or whatever version of how they articulate that. Mm-hmm. Like I yep. want to be leaner and I'm, okay, cool. Right. So that's going to be a major goal, a major mm-hmm. driver. We could say it's vain and whatever it is, whatever they, they could have their own motivations for whatever they want to do. And that's fine. But you're right. So I look at things that I see visibly in the mirror. I look at things that can, I, I can see visibly on the scale, meaning my body weight or what I can lift. Right. That's measurable. And I want to lift more. Cool. Mm-hmm. But part of that is, can you sustain a long period of time? Because, you know, that's not as cool, but it should yeah. be. It's, it should be like, I get that you post a workout and it's, here's what I lifted. And that's awesome. And here's how I look with my shirt off. And that's awesome too. No problem. But I think equally sexy to that is someone at 87 who can do whatever they want to do. That's freaking cool. The old right? Jack Lane thing. Yeah. And that's, and yeah. live independently. Like I know we're yeah. not of that age yet, but I bet you when we're 60 and 65 and 70, right. And 80, we're guaranteed we have different goals. And part of our goal is, can I just have what I had last year? Can I just maintain? That's a right. win. Yeah. And if I can have at 80 what I had at 60, I freaking won. Yeah. Like that is a major win. Yep. Right. And so as everybody's going like this, if I'm doing one of these and I'm just staying steady and everybody's mm-hmm. declining, I'm winning all the way. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, you know, we want that idea of sustainability. We really do. And, um, and so, you know, I think, Neil, to your idea of what you did with rock climbing and what you did by considering variability is something that everybody can consider as a phase of their program, as the backbone of their program, whatever, as long as they're considering it, excuse me, as long as they're considering it as they go through. So one of the things that uh, you use that I picked up years ago was task-based. Yeah. So task-based training. And that's something I, I've used ever since I heard that term. And I think it's extremely effective. Can you describe to the listeners what that is? Yeah. So muscles are task-driven. Well, you know, motor units are task-driven. So muscles and nerves are tra- task-driven. So we might say the rectus abdominis is a trunk flexor. But I guarantee if the three of us went over and did trunk flexion and just let gravity do its thing, the, trek, the trunk would not have flexed because of the rectus abdominis. So in that instance, it's not a trunk flexor. Gravity was a trunk flexor. In fact, if we had a bunch of EMGs on our muscles, by going through and flexing our trunk like we did this way, we'd find that the back muscles contracted, not the front muscles. And we'd say, wait a second, aren't they supposed to extend the spine? 
And then nature would say, well, they actually just decelerated transflection mm -hmm. because they had to slow down because you didn't want to plant your nose into the ground. So they're task driven. Like if all of you just sat forward in your chair and leaned back, you would feel your rectus abdominis, right? It was a task that you didn't have to call upon the muscles. Now, the cool part to that is if we know muscles are task driven, then we know that all we got to do is give them a task and get them to fire and relax. And so I'll kind of tee up on two things here, Dennis. We, we believe muscles need to do two things and two things really well. They need to turn on and they need to turn off and we need to teach them to do both of those things. So in our protocols, in our activation, we go through fluid dynamics, which is step one. Then we do what's called SMUR, which is small motor unit recruitment. And then number three is excitation. And excitation is when we teach the muscles to turn on and then off quick, on and off quick. So we're actually in our warmups, we're teaching muscle to turn off, turn them on, turn them off, get them on, turn them off. Right. And so, and then our last step is stimulation, which is eyes, ears, and you know, proprioception. So to the degree that we can turn muscles on and off is to the degree that we are preparing our bodies and to the degree that we can move better. Right. So take a look at back pain and golf swing. When there's threat, muscles stay on too long. And when there's threat, there's an increased risk of injury. So when we give the body a task-based thing and we get our cognitive efforts out of the way, we let the body normalize in terms of the sensory motor integration, when the body's going to turn on and when it's going to turn off, because it knows better than I do. All I've got to do is put it in a safe environment and then let it self-organize. Right? Nick Winkleman talks a lot about this, and we, we agree with him. Let the body put it in a safe environment and let the body make mistakes. Because if it's a safe enough environment, the mistakes that you think are mistakes are actually not mistakes at all. They are the body trying to self-organize a task, trying to make it better. Right. So just put it in an environment where it's safe and then let the body figure it out. So to that end, we believe in task based exercises. So if I'm picking up things, I could actually go through a sequence where you're teaching me the, the technique of it. Super cool. That's awesome. Uh, but in, within that technique, the body will utilize that technique and the task of that technique to organize, you know, the muscles in the motor system. Task-based is really organizing it around tasks, not muscles. So it's really about movements, not muscles. And we believe that that is a very good place for us to be capable as human beings. And I'll give you an example that's probably a little bit more germane to the conversations today within fitness, which is core, core stability, right? Often we've heard about the inner unit and the outer unit for years. As of late, I mean, I've been hearing more and more about breathing as the new core. Mm -hmm. Breathing is the new core. And I kind of like that because if we were to kind of warm a person up, we would give them a, the task of certain muscles. Like let's say we wanted to warm, warm up certain muscles. A lot of people like to pick on the glutes, right? So we want to get those glutes nice and going, want to get them engaged and warmed up. So one of the exercises they can choose is a glute bridge. All of us know glute bridge, you know, we get a person in a position, they go through a link action where they go through hip extension and back to the floor. So I'm laying down on my back, right? My knees are bent. I push my heels into the ground and I push my hips up and I bridge and I come back down. And often the individuals, where do they feel it? Well, they don't feel it on the glutes at all, yeah. right? A lot of those individuals will say, well, I feel my hamstrings. Mm -hmm. I feel my quads or I feel my lower back. And then the coach will say, well, wait a second. No, no, no. I want you to really focus in on those glutes, right? And really try to access that. And if people have good literacy, <laughs> right? They, okay, I can kind of do that. But in a lot of cases, think about this. If, if I'm in a situation where I'm new to exercise, I don't really have that mind-muscle connection. That's like saying, 
you're, you're talking a different language to me. Mm-hmm. And the more you say squeeze my glutes, I'm like, I understand the words that you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> they mean nothing to me, right? Okay. And so they try uh-huh. something and then, you know, what happens? So they, and then the coach says, what, you feel more? And they're like, no, but now my hamstrings are actually cramping on me, mm-hmm. right? No, no, try to relax. And so we go through that kind of process <laughs> of coaching movement, which is impossible for someone who's, who's especially new to exercise. If it was LeBron James and they're an exquisite mover, yeah, get internal with that. They can take internal cues and do that no problem because their skill is so high. But for the novice new mover, they can't do that. So what we do is we say, all right, give them a task instead. Because we might say glutes are good and we're giving them a, and we're kind of coaching the exercise of the muscle, try to flex that muscle. But I would argue if you took a, a bunch of fitness professionals who are really good at movement and can squeeze their butt and, you know, on a dime and just do it consciously over and over again, they've got good motor control. If I said to them, okay, in this room, where are their multifidus muscles? And they, the, the group of, of fitness professionals say, well, it's paraspinal muscles, the ones that are close to the spine. Yeah, good. Go ahead and contract them consciously. <laughs> and they go, and like, you guys try it. Like, your paraspinal muscles, go ahead and contract them. And just like the client uh, or the trainer with the client who's getting their glutes to contract, if I said, hey, Dennis and Neil, just try to contract them more. Like, really forget about, try to squeeze the multifidus. You're like, dude, I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> right? So in an effort to say, forget about that, let's give the body a task and let it self-organize. So if I had you guys breathe out fully, we call it forced breathing, in this case, forced exhalation. And I had you guys breathe out everything that you had in terms of air, and then you thought you were done. And I said, no, 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 you get that last candle out in the cake and there's a million dollars in your bank account tomorrow. And you're like, okay. So you think you're done and you're going to try to squeeze like two more seconds of breath out into what you thought was nothing left. What you're going to find is that accessory breathing muscles are primarily stability muscles. So by breathing out and go, 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 go. And when you're done, hey, Neil, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. You're going to see the trunk collapse. You're going to see the, the abdomen collapse and you're going to feel intercostals you're going to feel pelvic floor. You're going to feel all four layers of the abdominal wall. You're going to even feel uh, multifidus, all contract. Why? Because they are accessory breathing muscles. So we use the task of breathing for deep core stabilization. Why? Because it calls upon all those muscles. Now, the coolest part to that is, all right, if I can do that in anatomical neutral, could I put you in a backswing of a golf? Like, you know, let's say the, the back end of a golf swing. Could I preposition you in that position? And then can I say, let's do forced exhalation again. So you got a golfer that's at a driving range, puts the club head back, takes a breath in through the nose, forces exhale through the mouth. All the air comes out when they think they're done. Keep going, keep going, keep going. What are we generating? We're generating postural and motor control and stability in that joint position. What does the body recognize over time? Less threat. What does it do to club head speed? Bang, more velocity because more power, because more contraction, because higher force potentiation, because less threat, because I'm more stable. And we do that as a task in that position. And we just call upon the task of breathing in this example because it's task-based, because we are task-based. And instead of trying to consciously control abdomen, which people can kind of do, but how about intercostals? Like, go ahead, you know, Dennis, flex your intercostals right now for me. Yeah, right. I saw right. it. I saw it. Jack, man, the jack. But we would also argue that intercostals are pretty important for trunk stability. Well, 
but how do you train them, right? You train them through a task. Mm. And so we do that by virtue of these tasks that we give individuals. Breathing is awesome. But we would also say that things are weird until they're not, right? Things are weird until, like I do eyeballs, like, tra- like for my activation, I'll do like body tempering or some sort of fluid dynamic. Mm. Then I'll do some joint, uh, small joint motor unit recruitment. Then I'll do some excitations, some breathing stuff. Then I'll do some eyes and some, and my eyes are big and I'm tracking people like this guy's bizarre. And so I do all this as part of my warm up and people think this guy is a nut job, right? And then they look at the haka. You guys are aware of the haka? Mm-hmm. Go to New Zealand, you're, you know, let's say a rugby fan and you mm-hmm. see that Polynesian war dance no. that they use as a way to warm up and intimidate their opponents. That haka, what does it got? Well, it's got eyes that are big. Right? So now you got ocular motor inf- influence mm. to warm them up big. You're letting light in, right? So that is sympathetic tone. Now, what are they doing? They are not just kind of breathing. How are they breathing? They're, they're forced yeah. exhale, uh, exhalation yeah. and percussively exhalation because what are they doing? They're yelling. You ever listen to the haka? They are, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, that is forced exhalation. Do that and think about whether you are contracting forcefully all the muscles that are expiration muscles, right? So all these muscles that are expiration, so basically all the ones that, you know, blow air out, they are doing that at high speed, which is excitation, right? Ah, it's on and off, right? But they are grunting their way to deep core stabilization. And then the last one is all about stimulation, right? Proprioceptive stimulation because they are smacking their body as they do this. The wisdom that they understood, let's say, through generations past of just that tribal war dance for thousands of years can be explained physiologically extremely well. That is a warm-up. And when we do that with individuals, we'll take them through four steps. Fluid dynamics, step one. Small motor unit recruitment, which is, you know, like all your deep, you know, structure. Then your excitation, the on and off. And then stimulation, which is eyes, ears, and vestibular, or uh, proprioception. And when we take people through that, they always use an expletive. They go, fuck for sure, I'm fucking ready to go. Like, I, oh, I'm yeah. ready to fucking run 110%. And what I find interesting is the swear words. That ex, those expletives mm-hmm. are actually important to me because they're surprised themselves to the point where they're swearing about it. And what they realize is I, re, I feel like I'm ready to go. Mm-hmm. It's like, good, that should be your warm-up, right? Whether you're 87 or 27, I don't care. That should be your warm-up. What's funny is just sitting here talking about it because we, you want to do what the haka is just right now you want to do the haka what's in it is like just talking about it like i'm excited (laughs) because i know what it is and what's crazy is to think about how like you said over the thousands of years without a lab these guys and women get it they got it like they just i think everybody should start their session with a haka i was just gonna ask you have you done it yet have you have you uh, done the haka i've never done the haka uh i've spent a lot of time in australia new zealand but our warm-ups you know are stealing from the wisdom of what Mm -hmm. they have Mm -hmm. right and what's interesting is we have a group of folks going through our program our educational program right now and last week we talked about activation the whole week was about activation so we looked at the science of fluid dynamics We looked at the science of small motor unit recruitment. We looked at the science of excitation and stimulation and how you prepare a warm-up. And we used Haka as an example. We had a lot of feedback from that because our thing is if you saw Michelle in the gym doing his eye tracking, you'd say, this guy is a loose cannon, man. He's like, he's going to lose it every second. But things are, you know, we all know this. Things are weird until they're not. Like an arm bar with a kettlebell 20 years ago would have been weird. Would have been bizarre. Like, what what are they doing? 
right now legit and so we're saying hey no problem if it's weird do we have your permission to get weird knowing that that might be okay until everybody accepts it and there's a critical mass then it's not weird anymore and you know the idea of what they did so to answer your question we don't do the haka particularly uh but we do you know kind of a similar thing but what i want to do is just say things like the haka have a massive degree of wisdom behind them yeah we need to research what you know all the different tribal war dances and pick the best one that we like well and do that as a warm-up and there's also so the foot the that, foot stomping in the haka too yeah. so you got all ground that reaction there. yeah that's, ground that's reaction right got it. yeah neil i love that you should go and do that so just start to dissect all these tribal war dances and then make your assess, uh, assertion on which one you feel is the best. Just don't publicly say it because of course not. the people that lose, <laughs> they're going to go to the board. You're going to get flooded on Instagram and social media. Or you're going to hack it right in front of you. Buddy. Oh, yeah, we're going to have a whole bad war. No, but war I think that would be because what you might find is that there are wisdoms to this. You know, because yeah. everybody's talking like this new, innovative, progressive thought that breathing is the new core but when you look at the haka that is breathing like yeah. they are chanting aggressively into what we call forced or excuse me percussive exhalation so we've got forced breathing and percussive breathing and under forced breathing there's forced inhalation and forced exhalation which are both awesome and under percussive breathing I'm giving you guys a finger now <laughs> percussive breathing number two is you've got percussive inhalation and percussive exhalation and they're awesome now, here's the cool part about health and human performance. If someone did that and they were doing these forced breathing patterns of ex exhalation, recruiting the multifidus and everything we just talked about, what's happening to lung function over time? If I did that for the next year, am I going to, and I'm blowing out all my air and I'm inhaling all my air, am I going to affect vital capacity and tidal volume, which is lung function? Yeah. The answer is you bet you will. Oh, wow. Yeah. So if all cause mortality markers include COPD, which is, you know, a degeneration of the lungs, hallelujah, you've just mitigated yourself and made yourself a little bit more unbreakable. So when we say we program for health and human performance, that's exactly what we try to do. We're not always successful, but our POV on things is always those two things. We're not, we're not interested in human performance alone. We're interested in, okay, that's cool. You took a subject group and they elicited a performance gain. Awesome. What does that mean to their health? Mm -hmm. And if their health is in that equation and they're both awesome, awesome. We're going to run with it. If there wasn't, no problem. We can account for that. But we got to also account for health markers at a certain point in our programming. If not, we're just chronically overreaching. And that degrades the system over time. And so, you know, what we're looking at is, all right, cool. You know, if there's a lung function identity there, by the way, if I'm percussively exhaling, I'm blowing out CO2, right? Mm -hmm. So now I'm getting lung function. I'm getting deep core stabilization with percussive exhalation. I'm getting on and off of the muscles and I'm blowing out CO2. So those, you know, those athletes were doing the Haka, mm -hmm. they're blowing out CO2. What's happening to their blood oxygen levels? It's not increasing by number, but it is increasing by concentration. Mm. In other words, you are getting more oxygen by concentration in your blood because you're blowing out CO2. Hallelujah, what a wonderful proposition. All of that's done by virtue of what they are doing in this tribal war dance. Awesome. So blood chemistry, lung function, deep core stabilization. They're, their opponents are shitting their pants because they're so intimidated. Like mm. everything is you know, being achieved by that. Hey, Dennis and I have talked about it before about just like ancient warriors that from a movement training standpoint, they, they had it figured out. Yeah. 
And then we... Yeah, well, and, well, they had to figure it out because don't forget, that's how the body crafts its design. Mm-hmm. Like the, re- the reason why I think we haven't not figured it out right now is because we're introducing this thing called human form, which it has evolved in a certain way for thousands of years into a relatively new environment of a mechanistic, we're going to just, uh, as a machine, we're going to repeat this pattern a number of times and then put it down and then do it again. That's very mechanistic, right? The body is not used to that. And so what it had figured out was a result of the load and the interaction with load that it was exposed to for thousands of years. And that's just how the rules of the game of biology set itself. Mm-hmm. We're setting a new environment and the body is kind of struggling with this new environment. I will say that over time in our kids, kids, kids generation, spines won't be as susceptible to seating positions. They will be more robust to hold a seating position for hours at a time because they will have evolved or de-evolved or whatever to that new thing, Uh right? But it's been introduced through two generations, right? So for, you know, 117 generations, we had a certain thing. Now within a generation and a half, we're sitting for 20 hours a day. Yeah. Right? And the spines are like, man, we can't accommodate this quickly. So lower back and neck and, you know, all these, you know, issues as it relates to inactivity start to ensue because of this. And that's interesting because the time frame is really small. We have a hard time as a whole industry really putting that in context, that yeah. we are not that far into the things that we've done. The gym is like so new for our, you know, our experience of of biology. It is such a new thing. And, you know, here's the odd thing is that most people now in this generation, the only time they get movement is in the gym. (laughs) Imagine going back six generations ago and saying, there's going to be this thing called a gym. And that's where people get their movement. They're like, what? Like, aren't they moving throughout the day? Why do they have to go to a place for that? Aren't they just doing it as a natural function of living? And if you said to those people, no, they would think, what are you guys, animals in cages? Mm-hmm. And, and the answer would be, yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. And that's the weird thing is that we've got all these health decays by virtue of self-imposed structure. Like you put an animal in the wild, they're constantly under threat. They're constantly stressed and they're healthy. To say that stress is a root cause of, of disease is an incomplete thought mm-hmm. because approach a deer and see if they're threat threatened by you their eyes would be like bugging out they'd be mm-hmm. they're always under threat because everything wants to eat them mm-hmm. and yet they're healthy mm-hmm. right so stress does not make a person unhealthy just that ability to shut it off right what it, what's the natural what's the natural reaction to threat fight or fight, fight or flight yeah which is movement mm-hmm. so hardwired within our dna is when we're under stress move mm-hmm. move your body mm-hmm that is the antidote in the most immediate sense of the word. Like there's more intermediate senses, but in the most immediate sense, when your body's under threat or under stress, move. What do we do in our society now? I'm under, th- let's say what stresses me out is money. Uh, my boss, I got a job. What do we do? We're under threat or under stress and we don't move. You drink. We do the exact opposite. <laughs> right? yeah. And so you put that same animal that was healthy in the wild and you put them in a cage and within a month, you know, everything changed. Their physiology, the robustness of their architecture, everything changes. Yeah, it's like watching animals in a zoo. I mean, you can see basically the life sucked out of them, essentially, yeah. in, in many ways. Yeah. Great book out there. Uh, what's the author? Uh, Katie Bowman, I believe. Yeah, Katie Move Bowman, DNA. Move Your DNA. Great book. Yeah, yeah. Great book. Yeah, and so that, she speaks to this, right? She speaks to it in depth, like how we are hardwired to move. Mm-hmm. So we have to be. It's survival. 
Hey, you know, we not, talk not, about, not anymore, though. It's well, not, really not anymore, but that's what it was meant for. You I mean, got it. We had to survive to eat. We had to move to find food. And then we had to move to make sure we weren't eaten. Ironically, within you, you guys both said it, within a time generation or a time stamp that's so small, within one or two generations, we don't need to move to survive anymore. Survival for us means money. For most individuals in, in societies right now, survival means money. Unless, you know, you're succumbing to a virus or like in the pandemic that, you know, there's a more immediate need, like I need to keep myself safe. But, you know, in, in, through time, it's if I have enough money, that is survival for me and my offspring. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And to way, the way people make money in this environment now largely is not physical means. No, right? it's, yeah. it's intellectual it's, means. Exactly. Yes. It's intellectual sitting at a computer. You got it. Like like that. You're in the heart of Silicon Valley. It is all about intellectual means there. Oh, very much. Right? It's not about digging ditches. It's about can I code and can I figure out problems and solutions to problems to be able to service whatever. And so that requires sitting at a computer coding all day long. And what takes, you know, what is held hostage because of that is the physicalness of things. Yeah. And it's crazy to think because we do, we spend 16 hours, you know, especially here in Silicon Valley. By the time this podcast is done, it'll be 16 hours of us sitting right now. (laughs) Right? Yeah. I mean, you got, you got your, you got your commute to the office, then you're sitting at the computer. and, And as much as we tell clients, set an alarm on your phone. So that we, you get up every 45 minutes or so and move your butt for five, move around for five, 10 minutes at least, and then sit back down. Nobody, very few people do it. Yeah, it's true. Here's the cool part. Going back to our original discussion, uh, 4Q metabolic, right? So remember we had the, uh, the cross on the lower right-hand quadrant, we had submaximal intensity interval, right? Mm-hmm. When I said activities of day living, and remember we talked about the signature. Remember the data plot? So I'm doing my workouts and I did, a, let's say I did a cardio ride and it was steady state. Well, there's my signature on the cis quadrant. But activities of daily living can be plotted on the sit side, which is the lower right-hand side. And what's interesting about that is we can plot that now. So if people are sitting for 16 hours a day, not really moving, that is the most immediate health, health risk of any of the other quadrants. In fact, what we might argue is all four of those metabolic quadrants are significant and important. Mm. That one may be the most important. And yet no lab studies it, right? No exercise physiology performance study really covets it as being a, they look at the immediate outcome like, hey, what did you, you know, what exertion did you push or what wattage did you do this at or what intensity? Cool. But if we want to look at health as well as human performance, if we can actually start to map a signature towards daily movements, like your blue zones, right? Intermittent movement throughout the day, critically important. Because within an hour of sitting, right, your uh, lipoprotein lipase, peripheral heart action, catecholamines, all that chemistry changes within one hour of sitting. It's crazy. You know, you want to coach that, but it's difficult to. But if you plot it and you're saying, hey, customer, see this vacant quadrant right here? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You ain't doing anything in there, right? I know that you want, you know, a health outcome and a performance outcome and you're, you know, a type A personality, whatever. You've got a whole quadrant you're not even touching on here. And that you wouldn't even have to tell them that. If you saw a grid system, which is a, a, a cross, mm-hmm. and you saw scatter plots in three quadrants, what's the first thing they would say to you? Why is there nothing here? Yeah, why is there nothing there? And <laughs> yeah. what's supposed to go there that right. I'm not doing? Right. 
right? That's and they great. read themselves into that. And that's what we're finding with our logic, right? It's like kind of sticky to the consumer too, because inherent within that, there is visual equity. Let's say they're saying, well, what, what am I not doing? I, I see something's missing here. Should I be doing that? Yeah, you should. Mm-hmm. Well, what's in there? Mm-hmm. Get up and move. You know, close the rings, as it were, in, like in the Apple scenario, right? Close the rings, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fill in that quadrant. And I think people need to understand, just because you get a standing desk, yes, that changes some stuff. But standing and not moving is the same thing. It's actually worse. It's, so yeah. we would say, yeah, we would say there's sound bites like inflammation is bad, cortisol is bad, sitting is the new smoking. No, sitting is not the new smoking <laughs> because if sitting were the new smoking, you would buy a stand-up desk, mm-hmm. and, and you yeah. would stand at your desk. Well, if you came to me and said, "Is is that bad?" I'd say that's worse because standing idly is worse than sitting idly because. Standing idly, there's a bigger need for a muscle pump to get you know, oxygen or uh, blood rather back to your heart. It mm-hmm. has to travel a further distance when you're idly standing. So what you will get is more edema, which is basically mm-hmm. a filling of food when mm-hmm. you're standing than versus when you're sitting even. So edema is accelerated in standing individuals. Now, if that edema leads to a blood clot and you mobilize a blood clot and it goes to your heart or head, you're in, you're in a whole world of hurt. So standing idly is worse than sitting idly. So the solution for idle sitting is not idle standing. And then people Mm -hmm. say, got it. So sitting is bad. Standing is bad. Let me buy a (laughs) treadmill at my desk and I'll walk on my treadmill. Right. And it's like, no, because if you're trying to read an email that Dennis sent me and I'm trying to, you know, like read 12 font print and I'm gating, right. There's a reason Mm -hmm. why when you're, if, have you ever walked into a grocery store that you're walking and you're looking at a list and as soon as there's small print, what do you stop doing? You stop. You stop walking because yeah. walking disrupts the visual field. That's right. why when we walk, we scan the environment. But as soon as you want to look at something precise, you stop walking. Mm-hmm. The reason why you stop walking is you don't want to rattle the ocular motor reflex. Like you don't want to rattle your eyes, right? So you stop, you read it, and then you walk again. Mm-hmm. So imagine if you had a walking and you're walking doing your emails. What they have found is eyes become now squinting, headaches, right? And you got some other peripheral uh, issues. So here's the deal. That's not the solution either. So then people go, well, I can't do anything. Of course you can. It's about dosage and it's about navigating your day, right? So we would say this. People, if they want to become their own environmental engineers, go for it. So environment dictates behavior. Uh-huh. If you want to change your behavior, one of the ways is the trans theoretical model, which is awesome. Another way is change your environment. Like pre- premeditate and structure an environment that is different. So here's one that, that can be. Sit for t- tasks that require deep thought. Like you're thinking about strategy, you're sitting down. If you're in a job that interacts with the phone from time to time, either put your phone somewhere else or have a neural tag that when your phone rings, you immediately stand up and you do five squats. Even if you don't do five squats and you just sit right back down, if you answer 20 phone calls every three hours, that's 20 squats that you did every three hours, right? And if you multiply that by four, that's 60 squats. And if you, you, know, if you multiply that over the course of the day, it could be 100 squats. Or if you have to answer the phone to the other side of the room, what do you have to do? got to get up. You got to go move. And then for the span that you're on the phone call, don't sit down. Like that's easy for people to remember Mm because people don't, they don't not do something because it's hard. They might, but they do it because they get caught up in the environment of their day. 
And if I'm sitting at the computer tapping up emails, I'm going to forget to stand up because the environment is right here, right? But if I say, okay, my, I have a stand-up desk and I do emails at that stand-up desk, I'll do emails and then I'll come back. The point is this. I sit for part of the day and I attach it to a, a something that I already do within my environment. I stand for part of the day and I attach that to something that I already do as part of my day. And I walk around and I tag that and attach it to something that I do as part of my day. So let's say it's at work. I sit for periods of time where I'm thinking. I could stand when I do emails. And if it's a, a walking meeting or excuse me, it's meeting rather, I take my device or I take my whatever and I, we all go for a walking meeting. Meaning we walk and we, what I've just done is sat, stood and I walked around and I didn't have to think about either, any of them. I've saved all that cognitive bandwidth for my job. And I didn't have to remember anything. The, the environment dictated it for me, and I was free just to roam and live my life within that environment. Knowing that when we do meetings, a general rule is we do walking meetings. That's just a thing. We never have to think about it anymore. It's just part of our environment. Because what are we doing in the industry? We need to know more. You need to mm-hmm. you know, access more. You need to plan more. At a certain point, my question to you is, is there a cognitive overload and behavioral overload at a certain point in time? Of course. Like, I got to remember all this stuff. I got to remember to take my magnesium pill at you know, one o'clock to get to sleep tonight. And like, it just becomes endless in terms of how much I can remember. And this goes back, Neil, to your point, which was they seem to have figured it out like 17 generations ago. They went to sleep when the sun went down. They got up when the sun went up or came up. That's pretty simple, right? And yep. they got their sleep when the sun was down cool. And that was a lot easier. And so their environment dictated their behaviors. Our environment is, you know, blue light till like, we're watching Die Hard movies till like 12 at night. Am I dreaming of something I say Die Hard? Greatest action movie of all time, man. <laughs> Greatest action movie of all time. But you know what I'm saying? Like, and then we got light flashing, and then we got yeah. loud noises kabooming in our ears. And it's like, really? We're going to yeah. expect to sleep after that? Well, man, this time it's blown by. Yeah, I'm telling you. We had, we had 90 minutes yet? I just wanted to get us past that. No, we do. We, we, we yeah, are well, well past, past it, it, dude. We are well almost, past almost it. at your hard stop. Yeah, we got to. <laughs> but since we have hockey back, yay. Okay. Yes. Our, my team's uh, up, though. So. Well, I'm sorry, but that's not. Your fran- Your team has to learn that they need defense. I mean, the Oilers well, got to get some D. Yeah, well, I know. Well, we thought we got Larson, so, you know. Well. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so, so who's your who's your pick for this year's Cup Finals? I don't know. If Boston keeps doing what Boston can do, they're looking pretty good. Oh, uh, Kevin Carr, Marco Sanchez are gonna be happy to hear that one when they listen to this. Yeah, uh, yeah, I got Vegas and Boston in, in the finals. I, yeah. I mean, I'm hoping. I'm hoping. Yeah, I think. Yeah. What's easy with Vegas is they have uh, they've done incredibly well with you know with the expansion franchise. I mean, that goes to show people that. You know, all their marquee players, you can, you know, lock in. But if you make people available that want to work together, there you go. Teamwork, right? The, yeah. su- the, the sum, not all the All the teams parts. protected their A-list players, right? Yeah, yeah. And Vegas was able to poach you know, the unrestricted people. Yeah. Right? And they came together, and in the first year, they almost won the cup. Yeah. For Well, yeah, you got players that weren't given, that were told that you're not, you're not worthy capable of, of this. Yeah, you're not worth. You're not a first or second liner. You're a third or fourth liner, and then they were given the opportunity to be first and second liners, and, and look what happened. And so that's uh, 
it's opportunity, right? That's, that's what people need sometimes. They just need opportunity. True. Well, thank you for joining us, Michelle. We appreciate it, man. That was some great information. Yeah, and uh, taking the time and reaching out. I want to say to both of you, uh, congratulations on all your success with Stick Mobility. And, you know, I, I know what it takes to bring a, a tool to market. So congratulations on that. And, thank you. Uh, you know, I wish you continued success. Oh, so thank you so much. The way, the way you guys have done it, uh, the spirit with which you've approached it, I think uh, the legitimacy and authenticity that you have as people, as human beings, but also within the industry, couldn't have happened to nicer folks. So a heartfelt congratulations to both of you. Thank and you. Well, continue thank you. success. I know it's you guys are going to continue to kill it. So Thank you. And, and before you leave, uh, if you could give the listeners your social media handles and where they can find you guys at. Yeah. So my Michelle Dalcourt, so M-I-C-H-O-L, and then Dalcourt, uh, at Viper Pro. And at Institute of Motion are great on Instagram and, um, and Facebook. So, and then we go through a lot of what we just talked about. So when we have you back on next time, we'll get more into the Viper, the actual tool itself. Believe it or not, we kind of did. We did. We did. We uh, did. I didn't, we, and actually, probably better that we didn't talk about a product. And here's why. Okay. Like, you probably did me a, a, a favor. Because we did get into it. We did get into okay. the idea of variability. We did get into the idea of what made farm kids strong. We did get into all those things. But we got into it as a measure of, of a, a concept and a principle. Mm, yep. And I would argue that that's way more powerful than pushing a tool. Because mm. just like barbells are legitimate now and forever, it's legitimate because people bought into the idea and the concept of strength training. Mm, Nobody came true. to them and said, hey, do you want to buy a steel bar? And they're like, what's that for? And you put saucers at the end. It's really cool. I'm like, no, forget that. <laughs> right? they, bought in, they bought into the idea of strength training. Yeah, very true. And once they did, a tool like a barbell or a dumbbell or a kettlebell became instantly legit. And the reason why you guys did me a service is we didn't talk about the product at all. Oh, right? All we did was we talked about a concept or a series of concepts. Mm-hmm. And if a person out there is listening to that going, that concept makes a ton of sense. Good. Lean on that concept. For all I care, chop down a tree branch and lift that and move it around. Because yeah, yeah. physiologically, it's going to be the same thing. Yeah. What that does is I think it does two things. It legitimizes the concept. And what it does do is it builds trust. Because mm. Michelle's not here trying to pedal a tool. Mm. Like, I'm not here trying to pedal a product at all. Mm. I'm like, I could care less, right? Mm. Well, I mean, it's nice that people adopt it. But to me, it's like just buy into the concept. Because if you do, you're going to consider products like Viper and others that are legit in the space. Mm-hmm. And if you do, then you're making the right choice for the right reasons, right? So I would just say that that's, this is the best discussion to have, right? Because awesome. consumers are, they're too discerning. They're too clever out there. They're going to smell a rat from a mile away. If I'm just saying, hey, you should buy this because it's the biggest, the best thing ever. And it's does this and this and this. And that, that is not authentic. What we discussed mm-hmm. was more authentic. Fantastic. Well, thank you, brother. We appreciate you as always. Love you. Love your company. Uh, we appreciate your support. And uh, we look forward to having you on again in the not-too-distant future, man. Yeah, to you, you guys stay safe. I hope the loved ones are safe, too, during this time. Yes. And, um, you know, you guys stay safe and, um, and be well. And we'll, we'll chat soon. All right, Excellent. Thank you. And to all the listeners out there, thank you for tuning in. And until next episode, be good to each other.